Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes, and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory, and even characterizations, all came together over time and were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans after the 60s series ended. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing it, and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or, to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek, and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. Vulcans are logical, Klingons are warlike, Ferengi are greedy, Bajorans are spiritual. When it comes to aliens in the world of Star Trek, you always know where you stand. Or do you? Crafting an alien culture is difficult in fiction. Trek's attempts sometimes seem laughable, but it's to their credit that they attempt to do it on a regular basis at all. And as anyone who's watched a good amount of Trek knows, there's always more to an alien race than meets the eye. In fact, sometimes it seems like the main theme of Trek is that there's no rule without an exception. Hi, welcome to the Mirror Universe podcast. Once again, I'm Adam Prosser, and with me is Douglas McDonald Norman. G'day. <laughs> and uh, today we're going to talk about aliens on Star Trek, and specifically we're going to talk about uh, the way Star Trek handles aliens, um, which is... Uh, the the most common accusation leveled at Star Trek is that it is uh, a little bit reductive when it comes to aliens, uh, that they tend to be uh, monocultures, and they tend to be something which has been termed the planet of hats. Um, and the funny thing is, I think, though, that there are some massive exceptions to that to the point where uh, I don't always feel that's necessarily a fair uh, criticism of Star Trek. Uh, but it is complicated, and we're going to delve into it. Um, but uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, Douglas, maybe you can explain the origin of the term Planet of Hats for us. So I can explain the meaning better than I can explain the, the origin. Say, for example, that the Starship Mirror Universe podcast arrives on the planet Hatania. The defining feature of this planet is that everyone's wearing a hat. Above all else, this is what holds them together as a singular unified species, civilization, culture. Their government is hat-based. Their rituals are in some way based upon veneration of hats and denigration of the hatless. The person with the biggest hat obviously rules the planet. Those with the smallest hats are the underclass. Everything is in some way reductive to a singular unified characteristic that ultimately becomes overwhelmingly dominant and is the be-all and end-all of who they are, their hopes, their dreams, their fears. As you've noted in the opening uh, narration, the charge against Star Trek is that sometimes it treats individual characters as merely representations of a facet of their culture. For example, in the episode Let, there be their last, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield in the original series, you have a race of aliens... You have two races of aliens, one of whom are white on their left side and the other and black on their right, and the other who are black on their left side and white on their right, where the characters are entirely driven and governed 
by this singular characteristic and where it is the sole focus of their culture, their history, their hopes, their dreams, their society. It is the planet of hats is ultimately the idea of planets or civilizations as a single monoculture without variation, without differentiation, driven by a singular all-consuming characteristic to which the characters are ultimately subordinate. Yes, and it is, um, of course, uh, something that to a degree you can't ever quite get away from in fiction. Uh, I'm, I'm being a bit uh, glib, but it, it is certainly true that that's how writing takes place. It's, it's definitely part of the nature of Star Trek, because that is a show that, as we said before, it's a show where uh, a massive spaceship drops out of the sky every week and solves everyone's problems, often with a stern lecture, uh, before taking off the next week. Uh, I think I think someone... Um, <laughs> someone... Uh, I remember a teacher of mine once described uh, the appeal of shows like, at the time, popular shows like uh, Jerry Springer, and even to an extent something like Oprah, uh, where it was, you know, you could present all these people with very obvious problems... And you, or even literally the audience in some cases, could stand up and say, well, you know what your problem is? You're not treating that person with respect, and, and you're not blah, blah, blah. Like, that's, it, it, they present you with a very obvious problem to identify. Uh, and that's kind of what Star Trek is doing. It, it, you know, every, every, every uh, planet has its obvious uh, problem, which Kirk can, or Picard can, uh, can point to specifically. And um, and while that obviously has its use as a as a narrative uh, function, it can be limiting and very problematic because again, it tends to that kind of uh, cultural chauvinist mindset of well, we know what's best for you, and we're the ones who have reached uh, an ideal point, so we're going to uh, we're going to identify you silly, you know. Bulgravians or whatever you are, and tell you what your problems are. And of course, that that even applies even to the major Star Trek uh, aliens to a certain extent, because it's, well, the Vulcans are too logical and they need to lighten up. They need to understand that emotion has a place. Oh, the Vulcans are, the Klingons are too violent. They need to understand, you know, that you don't, you're not always picking fights with people. Well, the Ferengi are too greedy. They need to understand, you know, capitalism is bad. You know, all, the, all these kinds of problems tend to uh, derive from, uh, having these very simple monocultural aliens, which is what always happens in Star Trek. Um, and to that, now to be fair, um, even way back at the beginning of the show, uh, they started to understand, I think they understand that, or even, you know, implicitly understood it. Because, I mean, for instance, the original idea with, with Spock was that he was half human, half Vulcan. And that was obviously created as a way to make him struggle with his you know, logical heritage. Um, but they fairly quickly established that it's not Spock's mixed heritage that causes it. It is what Vulcans are like. They're all dealing with this powerful uh, emotional core and their powerful uh, issues that they deal with. Uh, and logic is how they deal with it. So that that complicated them. I think that was, um, I mean, somewhere between a Journey to Babel and a Muck Time, uh, we got into that idea. I think Amok Time is the one that really established it, Theodore Sturgeon as the author. Uh, I think um, I think that really locked in that idea, which is vastly more interesting, may also have come from Leonard Nimoy to an extent. Uh, so that made them more than they appeared. And that's been something that has consistently popped up throughout Star Trek, the idea that these races 
you know, you can identify a problem with them very easily. But you know what? There's almost always more to them than they appear to be. Uh, and that's where it gets a little more redemptive and a little more positive because you start to understand uh, as you spend more time with them, especially. And that's been that's why it's been best served for the character, the, the races that we see a lot of. And uh, as we start to meet the individuals and as they start to integrate with the main characters, they start to become more complex characters like Nog, for instance, and the Ferengi on Deep Space Nine became a much more complicated than just simplistic, you know, capitalist bad guys. Um, the Klingons through Worf, the Vulcans through, through Spock. Um, but it is true that when Star Trek has an alien race that they're going to deal with for a single episode, uh, they do tend to struggle with that. They're just humans except less diverse and they have the one problem that needs to be fixed is a common a common issue with uh star trek episodes of course i think the example of spock is really interesting because there's been some really interesting academic literature about spock as a mixed race character or a person of a person who's drawing upon two cultural heritages and placing that in the traditions of mixed race characters in Western popular fiction. So, for example, in Westerns, the native people of Native American and non-Native American descent, the idea that those characters would either be able to service guides to the assumed white main characters because they were able to navigate both worlds or even the notion that they were in some sense untrustworthy for that reason. The idea of divided loyalties or the idea of having somehow fallen short of the pure ideal of both races. That is to say, Spock's presentation as half human, half Vulcan isn't just interesting as a characteristic in itself, but to the extent to which it draws upon an older and in many ways very problematic tradition of presentation of characters from multiple cultural heritages and the question of the conflict of loyalties which is said to arise from that. And this is, arises particularly clearly in early Star Trek in which the political layout is not clear and it's not even clear if we're talking about a human spaceship on which Spock serves and what role the planet Vulcan plays in the broader political outlay altogether. So, yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right, over time Star Trek moved away from the idea that Spock is somehow unique in his struggle against emotion because of his ancestry and that that is by and large that all Vulcans feel emotions the question isn't do you feel emotions the question is what approach do you take towards your emotions and that to the extent Spock struggles unduly with this it's because of his cultural heritage rather than anything biological which I think is a far more interesting and far less reductive take because you're absolutely right that in the context of a single in the context of a show about a spaceship that travels from planet to planet, ultimately some degree of reductiveness is always going to happen. And often it's a dramatic device that Star Trek is telling fables about this is a planet that has been brought low because of their greed. This is a planet that has been brought low because of their prejudice. This is a planet that has been brought low by war. It's painting in primary colours because it is ultimately interested in illustrating a single aspect of the human condition rather than attempting to invest us in a far more complicated landscape. If you're trying to tell a story against war, having a planet defined by war provides a clean and direct way to do that. The problem with that, though, is if Star Trek loses sight of that, 
and suggests that these are irreconcilable conflicts, that some people are just the way they are, that, for example, there is something inherently stolid about Vulcans that they cannot overcome, that there is some inherent aggression in Klingons they cannot overcome, if Klingons are all, if Ferengi are always going to be greedy. Because in a show that is aspirational, in a show that suggests that humans have been able to overcome our baser instincts, the problem with suggesting that there's something innate that some people are just going to be violent and that's just the way they're built, is that it's actually a profoundly pessimistic vision. Some of us can access utopia. Some of us are stuck outside because they're just built different. Yeah, and and I mean, I think that's exactly why uh, Star Trek has always... um, uh, if not consistently, but it's always hit a certain point where it realized it had to reverse that. It had to say, yeah, no, and, and in, to the point where that became a major thing, especially in uh, the Berman era, uh, where they started to realize, like, well, we can't say all Klingons are violent thugs. They're all bikers. You know, there have to be complications to that. We can't say Ferengi are all greedy, you know, weasels. There have to be complications to that. And that became a, cons- a fairly consistent thing on Star Trek. There's always, like, factions. There may not be a wild diversity of, uh, you know, people within a certain group, uh, within like, on a planet, within a, an alien species. There may not be this rich, conflicting cultural di- pro- issues or philosophical issues, but there are always factions, and there are always... Uh, members of whatever race who push back against uh, whatever they're being associated with, whatever they're being affiliated with. Even something like the Jem'Hadar, who are quite literally, uh, on on Deep Space Nine, they're literally the foot soldier, genetically engineered foot soldiers of the Dominion, whose entire culture is based around being cannon fodder, for all intents and purposes. They still did an episode uh, where, um, I forgot, I'm forgetting the title, but it's the one where uh, Bashir tried to cure them of their addiction to Ketrasol. Right, yes. And, that, and, and uh, you know, that's a great episode. And that is exactly... And, and it wasn't just Bashir as the, the savior, not white savior, but as the, uh, the, the, the guy sweeping in to solve their problems. Um, it was instigated by a Jem'Hadar themselves. Like, they, they were the ones who... Who, who had somehow found a way to get off this, and they didn't know how. It had ha- Medically, it was a, an anomaly. But they said, look, I need you to help me do this because I don't want to be... I need to help other members of my race, and we need to, we need to be more than just, you know, uh, flunkies, essentially. Um, they, you know, they didn't always pursue that. With the Jem'Hadar, they, they, they sort of became a plot device as the show continued, unfortunately. Uh, but it just shows that... You know, I can't think of a single major Star Trek race, a recurring Star Trek race, that hasn't had someone stand up and go, well, you know, I object to whatever the dominant culture of our time is. It's, there's always someone, and that's that's a pretty go-to uh, Star Trek story at this point, where there's someone who says, no, you're wrong. There's uh, the Admiral, uh, uh, the Romulan Admiral, who, uh, who, who ends up betraying his people. There's a duet, uh, the, the guy who, uh, the, the Cardassian, who, who stands up against Cardassia, and I mean, to a certain degree, Garrick. I mean, even Dukat in a weird way, you know, that, but that, that's because, uh, again, on Deep Space Nine, we're, we're dealing with certain uh, races over and over again, and we get to flesh them out and, and, 
and see the differences between them and 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 the the different conflicts that would operate within that species. If we're just visiting them for a second and flying off next week, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a little hard harder to delve into that. I do sometimes wish Trek made a little bit more of an effort in that regard, though. I want to talk about Cardassians because I always want to talk about Cardassians. I think Deep Space Nine is by far the best at this. And I think one of the really interesting things that it depicts with its Cardassians is a debate about the direction of Cardassian culture in which it's not a question of some characters being more or less Cardassian than others. It's characters who are intensely nationalistic, intensely patriotic, based in a very profound place of cultural grounding who are arguing over what staying true to Cardassia means in given situations. And so we see it, for example, in um, Return to Grace, the one where Ducat is a disgraced freighter captain fighting a guerrilla war against the Klingons. At the end, he's told that the Cardassian government wants to sue for peace. And it's suggested... And it's suggested to him, shouldn't you go with what the Cardassians are doing? And he says, what other Cardassians? I am the only Cardassian left. He ascribes to a particular model of Cardassian martial virtue that goes above and beyond what his particular government is doing, and where you have multiple different strands about what is the right thing for a Cardassian to do in this situation. Similarly, with Garrick, who is my favourite Star Trek character of all time, you have someone who is intensely passionate about Cardassian literature, Cardassian culture, who is very old-fashioned in his values in many ways, who's a member of a secret intelligence organisation which is discredited and destroyed over the course of the series, and which he never truly repudiates. By the end of the show, he's working with the Federation against the Cardassians, is part of a guerrilla movement that is partially responsible for the destruction of Cardassia inadvertently, and he's able to at once acknowledge the enormity of Cardassian historical crimes, to understand intellectually that what's happened to Cardassia is the result of its aggression, its intolerance, its rapacious annexation of other worlds, but at the same time as someone who is intensely loyal to his country to feel enormous devastation at what has happened. Garak's model of being a good Cardassian isn't based upon blind faith in whatever the Cardassian government does, and it's not based in blind rejection of whatever the Cardassian government does. Instead, it, there is a really interesting nuanced view that being a Cardassian doesn't militate a single response to a single situation, that it is a contested culture with multiple different interpretations of what being Cardassian and true to Cardassian values means. And that's fascinating. Um, you've brought up the example of Nog as well, and Nog is a similar example of this. Nog isn't a worse Ferengi because he's a Starfleet officer, and he's not a worse Starfleet officer because he's a Ferengi. Instead, part of the genius of Deep Space Nine is that what makes Nog such a good officer is that he is a Ferengi. He is intensely ambitious. He is resourceful. He is really, really good at managing scarcity of resources in a way that fellow officers who've grown up in a utopia in which resources pour out of replicators aren't. He's able to use the skills that his culture prizes. He's able to draw upon the way he's been raised and to do so within a new cultural confine, to be a Ferengi Starfleet officer, drawing upon 
all those disparate aspects of how he's been raised and what he values. And so at its best, Star Trek doesn't present characters as purely straightjacketed by their culture. It recognises that culture is an important aspect of how they act, but it's not a single unified set of tracks that they're stuck upon. Instead, it's a set of skills and a set of perspectives that they can argue about and that can ultimately be repurposed towards a variety of legitimate perspectives. And that, I think, is fantastic. Um, yeah, I, you actually you brought up uh, what I think might be my single favorite uh, theme or uh, fictional go-to trope in Star Trek that is... It's not unique to Star Trek, but Star Trek is the one, the at least the major pop cultural uh, thing that I would point to as a, a classic example of that, uh, which is that um, the idea of someone who is so uh, who holds so strongly to their own cultural values that it become that they end up judging the same culture that they were supposedly part of um, as a, like they're able to see the problems with their own, within their own culture because they're such good soldiers and such believers in their own culture. We, we really see this with uh, Worf. I, there's a trace of it with Spock in the original series, uh, but not as much as we eventually see with Worf because of course Worf is the guy who is absolutely, uh, completely holding to the idea of being uh, the perfect Klingon, precisely because he's an outsider and he wasn't raised in the Empire. And other Klingons tend to look down on him. They tend to sneer at him. He's not, you know, oh, you hang out with humans. Well, there's nothing about Klingon culture that I can under see that tells you you can't hang out with humans. Uh, it's a series of virtues and, and, and you know, it's a way of, it's a mode of behavior. And I've always said, I, I want to see more... Um, admiration for the Klingons within Star Trek. Uh, they're, they're, they're there to be stand-ins for the, the, you know, the negatives about militarism and, and so on. Uh, you did, again, you started to get some of it on Deep Space Nine, um, with people like Martok, and, and of course Worf himself. Uh, I think there's a lot to admire, you could potentially have a lot to admire about Klingons. I think if, if you sort of looked at their, whatever their, the Klingon, uh, you know, book of law is, if there's something like that, whatever Kalos's great uh, teachings were, they were probably pretty good. I mean, of course, these guys are militaristic. They like fighting. They like violence. But just as, you know, a lot of cultures have warrior virtues that can be applied in many different ways to uh, better oneself, I'm sure Klingons have all of that as well. But the problem is that the Klingon Empire, especially as we see them, the most we see of them is in uh, the next generation Deep Space Nine era, uh, they're pretty clearly, even though never no one ever outright says this, but they've pretty clearly uh, lost the plot. And they're they're very they're pretty corrupt, especially when you know Gowron's in charge. He's the guy we see as in charge of the, the Klingon Empire. As uh, you mentioned in the last episode, their messiah literally returns over the course of next generation, and it doesn't matter because Gowron's the one calling the shots. Um, the the uh, you know the Klingons you know, they don't, they'll do dishonorable things and they'll find rationalizations for why it's honorable. Um, and to the point where Worf becomes the guy who comes in and says, wait a minute, you, and he never quite, he's never quite able to bring himself to say, Klingons suck, but <laughs> you can see him struggling with the idea that what he, he thinks of as a Klingon has not 
adhered to what the actual Klingons are behaving like, and yet he wants so badly to be part of that culture. Um, and it, and you just mentioned it with Garrick and, and Dukat in different ways, but, you know, Dukat saying, I'm the only Cardassian, so I'm going to pass judgment on all the actual Cardassians, because I'm the only one who lives up to uh, the ideal, whereas Garrick was a possibly more positive way, because by the end of uh, Deep Space Nine, Garrick's the one who says, well, look at what happened. We you know, we, we brought ourselves to ruin. It's, 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 you could argue it was because we didn't live up to our values, although Cardassian values are a little screwy. Um, it's similar to what happens in the very first uh, season of Deep Space Nine in Duet. Um, he has the whole speech about Cardassian, Cardassia won't survive uh, unless we acknowledge what we've done and move forward and evolve. Um, which we then get six seasons of Cardassians not being able to do that, and finally Garrick going, well, this is what happens. We weren't able to evolve. This is this is where we ended up, and it's a it's a it's a fascinating case of a culture's own values being used against it. And then, in a more comical way, uh, you get Quark on Deep Space Nine, who is the guy who, as Ferengi culture is radically changing around him, more so than any of those other cultures. Uh, Ferengis have become something quite different by the end of Deep Space Nine, and Quark can't handle it because he's so addicted to the way. Uh, Ferengi are supposed to be. And from our perspective, that's bad. But from him, it's like, no, I'm holding to my cultural values, which are cowardice and avarice, basically. And yet, I'm the only one who wants to do that. And the Ferengi, who have now become a much more liberalized society, have left behind those values. And of course, he gives the parody speech from what uh, what uh, Picard gives in First Contact, where he goes, the line must be drawn here, no, this far, no further. Um, so that's always been a fascinating thing that, that Trek has done in a few uh, situations, which I find really, really interesting. I, I love that that trope uh that the trek drags out and i i, I think it's it, it's endlessly applicable to any sort of culture the, any fictional culture you want to might want to create one of my favorite little bits from children of time in the fifth season of gcs9 in which the crew of the defiant are thrown forward a couple of hundred years or thrown back a couple hundred. There's a time travel thing by which they meet their descendants a few hundred years in the future. And Worf meets a group of young men and women who are inspired by his values. Some of them are directly descended from him. Some are not. But they are a small subset of this society who have chosen to renounce society and live by the values of Worf. They are effectively Klingon revivalists or non-Klingons who have devoted themselves towards the Klingon way of life and the Klingon beliefs. Why isn't that happening everywhere? You're absolutely right that we should see in Star Trek more admiration for the Klingons, or we should see humans who identify with Klingon culture. We should see um, humans who identify with Vulcan values. We should see more cultural syncretism than what we do. In Star Trek, we see, for example, the liberalization of Ferengi society in, by, by which the intensely misogynistic, capitalistic society of the Ferengi is ultimately gradually liberalized implicitly by contact with other cultures. We see um, in other instances, for example, the move towards Bajor's integration with the Federation. It's gradual evolution from a war-torn planet emerging from occupation towards a stable democracy. But it's all one way. We see the Federation's values flowing outwards. We very rarely see the Federation absorbing much from the people it comes into contact with. 
Now, part of that is acknowledged by Star Trek itself. There's Eddington's great speech from For the Cause, in which he says that the Federation is endlessly expanding outwards, endlessly assimilating other cultures, that it is too big and too arrogant. Maybe that's why we don't see anyone within the Federation seeming to take much from the people that they encounter. But I think it would ultimately make for a truer and more interesting experience if the Federation isn't just expanding its values outwards, but if it is in turn being shaped by the people it encounters. And ultimately, I think that's one of the interesting things about the future history of Star Trek. We talked about last episode, what's going to happen to the Klingons in Discovery? What I think ultimately would be a really interesting future for the Federation would be unification with the Klingons. The two major civilizations of the Alpha and Beta Quadrants, the two largest military powers, their long alliance ultimately building into some form of political unity. Now, this wouldn't be a simple absorption of the Klingons by the Federation. The Klingons are too large for that. You would see, ultimately, some form of hybrid in which the Klingons, as the largest race within the new Federation, shaping the values of that culture. We see sort of gestures towards what that might look like in the second last episode of this season of Discovery, in which a merger with the Emerald Chain is proposed that would ultimately lead to a profoundly different Federation to what we've seen to date. In Discovery, that opportunity is not taken up, but I think there's really, really interesting avenues to explore about how the Federation not just changes the civilizations that join the Federation, but how the Federation could be changed in turn. Yes. Um, Again, you know, Deep Space Nine possibly leading the way a little bit on that, uh, because um, uh, we did see how the culture on Deep Space Nine was a little more syncretic, as you say. It was... was Blending a little bit, they, the fact that everyone drinks uh, Roctagino uh, and uh, and eats Bajoran food, and of course Bajor dominates the proceedings because they're at Bajor, uh, and one or two other things. You know, everyone likes to play um, get the the Ferengi games at Quarks. So you you do see a little bit more of uh, how you know Federations maybe been nudged in that direction uh, on Deep Space Nine specifically. Uh, famously, Ron Moore was critical of Voyager because it didn't. Uh, show that aspect. It didn't show the Federation sort of giving way uh, to these other uh, values that both the, uh, the the McKee, who aren't specifically an alien culture, but just the fact that they're in the Delta Quadrant and they're going to be made up of, uh, you know, they're going to be sort of hopping from uh, from sinking ship to sinking ship, and they're going to be drawing on whatever technology they could find, whatever culture they could find. Um, but that is always, yeah, that's that's a really fascinating aspect to it. Again, it, it speaks to how a well-meaning thing, which is, you know, adhere to your values, can turn into, uh, you know, potentially a bad thing. You know, again, we want to see Starfleet and the Federation as these idealized versions, but maybe there's something out there that has something else to teach you. You can't just... Uh, you can't just use, uh, you know, you can't just say, well, we've solved everything, we've got it right, and no other culture has it right, so we're going to stick to what we are, and we're going to dominate everyone else because we're so great. Um, and that is a that is a consistent problem. Again, when, when you're using other races and other species uh, in this story, as this in this Gulliver's Travels kind of 
mindset, as you've meant, as you called it, uh, where uh, you know you're you're there to to learn something about humanity by reflecting on this other culture. Um, you know that's all well and good from a simplistic fictional point of view, but I think it needs to be understood. And I think this is probably my number one criticism with Star Trek. I think it's something that's always better to to uh, make clear, to help other people understand that another society does not just exist in relation to you. That the other, in this case, an alien uh, culture, um, by encountering them, you grow and you learn more. That's the whole reason you explore in the first place. Uh, I do want to be clear. Now, this obviously applies to you know other cultures here on Earth and in the real world. Uh, and I do want to... Uh, there's a reason I always sometimes like to put an asterisk there's no denying the fact that your relationship to uh an, you know the way aliens are portrayed in science fiction is usually at least metaphorically representative of uh racial relations and cultural relations here on earth uh it, it's almost unavoidable that you know oh your approach to an alien race is going to reflect even if you don't literally say yeah they're space samurai or whatever you, you know you, you're not literally uh you may not literally be typing them as space alien, you know, as a as a another race, but with you know green skin, which is very problematic for obvious reasons. Um, something like Avatar, you know, <laughs> the the problem that you get into there. But even if you've created a genuinely alien civilization, uh, the relationship to them is probably going to reflect, in some ways, often inadvertently, how you you know how you would relate to another culture here on Earth. The only real world example of how to deal with that. And I think it's important, though, to remember that there's a difference between an alien and a, and a literal, you know, other human culture, which is something you can you can encounter in real life. I think that you know what I just said needs to be kept in mind that there is always going to be a racial element to that. It's going to be a, it's going to be the subtext of everything you're doing. But also to literally say, what would another alien being be like? What would they think like? This is a, a race that has less in common with you than a paramecium because you are you know that's that's at least another organism that's on earth this is an entity that exists in an entire other solar system entire other planet it's radically different it would just be completely unlike anything and until we ever meet aliens in real life we can't you know say by observation but we need to be able to stretch our intellectual muscles i think to be able to think about what would this other species be like? What would it be like, and how could we relate to them? I think that's a very important exercise in empathy. And again, feeding back to it, it helps us understand other people, other cultures. Um, even if that's not a, a specific example of something that's going to happen in the real world, it's something that uh, encourages us to uh, think outside of ourselves and to expand our mindset and expand who we are. And I think that's something that's very valuable in science fiction. And it's something that Star Trek doesn't do anywhere near as often as I'd like. Even when, because the point of the episode is, well, we're going to do a, a fable about racism or whatever. But then you get an episode like uh, Darmok, which really does, like, that's a great you know, sampler for someone who may not have thought along these lines to go, okay, here's an alien race. They have a legitimately alien way of thinking. And the whole point of the episode is you you develop an empathy with that race and you start to understand them and connect with them on, on some basic level. Um, 
Trek doesn't usually get that weird with its aliens, but although sometimes it does. Um, sometimes you literally have some kind of weird, like, subspace creatures that you can't properly communicate with. It does occasionally deal with the idea of, well, what if you can't really communicate with these beings at all? They're so different from you. Um, and I think that's a very valuable uh, thing to that science fiction can do, even when you're not literally, you know, preaching about what... <laughs> about how to relate to another uh, so, something that isn't you. Uh, I think that's that's something that's important, and I, and, and I do wish, so for that reason, Trek put a little more thought into its individual planets of the week, as it were. I couldn't agree more with most of that. I think that's absolutely correct. And speaking in particular to your point, it's both about empathy and about how planets shouldn't ultimately be just a a stage for the characters who visit them. One of my favourite Star Trek episodes of all time is The Quickening from Deep Space Nine, Episode 4, in which, fundamentally, Bashir thinks he's landed on a planet of hats and it all goes terribly, terribly wrong. Bashir lands on a planet in which the population are ravaged by a terrible plague and there's a local doctor, Trevian, who is euthanising the sick. Bashir sets out to cure the plague and to restore hope to a civilization who have lost hope. From the beginning, Bashir's approach to this planet is reductive. They have a plague. I'm going to fix it. It's ultimately going to be about me. He is using a culture and a civilization. He is using a culture and a biology that he fundamentally doesn't understand as a mechanism for self-gratification, as a mechanism for what he thinks will be a quick and easy victory, a demonstration of his skills. And it all goes terribly, terribly wrong. Trevian, the euthanasia doctor, isn't a cynical man feeding off the population's despair. He is, in fact, a very decent, very caring man who is responding in the only way he can to an unsolvable problem. It's not an easy solution that Bashir can solve because he's better and quicker than they are. It is, in fact, a problem that he makes much, much worse because his scientific instruments cause the plague to speed up. Bashir visits a planet without empathy, without understanding, viewing the planet ultimately as a mechanism for self-expression. And his failure to interrogate what's happening, his failure to look beyond his initial preconceptions of how this society is set up, ultimately cause great suffering. The fact that he is ultimately able to develop not an antidote but a vaccine comes not so much from his efforts because he... or come not solely because of his efforts, but come because... There is a woman on the planet who ultimately is willing to continue to see him, who is willing to break past the dis this despair, and through her own efforts and her own heroism, plays an important part in allowing the vaccine to be developed. But that's part of why the quickening is so great, that it is ultimately a story about the limits of preconceptions in dealing with alien cultures, and it is ultimately a, an episode in which Bashir's preconceptions cause more harm than good. And I think that's uh, it's a, an important episode because all too often Star Trek doesn't interrogate that uh, the assumptions that its characters bring to planets. We, by and large, identify with our main characters, the ones on the starships, and their assumptions in dealing with a particular planet 
A, are ordinarily the ones that we share, B, ordinarily the ones that the writers share, and C, all too often, are proved correct. Star Trek needs to be able to show that those snap judgments or those superficial understandings are all too often ill-informed. Um, at that stage, I would like to move on to, I think, what will be our last and largest segment of the episode, which is discussing uh, the evolution of the Klingons, Star Trek's, I think, most detailed attempt to build out an alien culture and to effectively challenge some of those assumptions by consistently not just portraying the Klingons, but asking why they are that way, of consistently going deeper and examining some of the social forces that produce what other writers have depicted. Now, the Klingons, as we see them in the original series, are not a complex culture. Their initial appearance in Errand of Mercy is a is effectively a an expression of the worst fears of the Cold War. The Klingons themselves are largely an Orientalist stereotype depicted in blackface with Fu Manchu moustaches, a civilization a far cry from what we later see, but one which is based instead upon totalitarian control. Kor, the Klingon leader, governs through threats, force, and blackmail. He conducts mass executions of civilians. He is contemptuous of the people he governs. Even in his office, he is constantly under surveillance by those higher up within the Klingon hierarchy. This isn't a free-spirited society of warriors. This is a totalitarian society in which absolute control is exerted by the state and every level of Klingon society is monitoring and controlling the next. Now, even in Errand of Mercy, we can see some germs of what later emerges. Kor himself, for all that he's a fairly brutal villain, is given remarkable charisma by John Colicos's indelible portrayal. He is fun to watch on stage, and there is, even when he's blustering and making threats, a sense that he is being theatrical about it, that he enjoys the performance of the Klingon governor, that he's not just Colicos, but Kor knows that he's playing a part. And Kor's final line to Kirk, regretting that there will not be a war because it would have been glorious, in that one line, that veneration of war for its own sake, we see the seed of what ultimately becomes an enormous aspect of Klingon society going forward. But the Klingons in the original series are a far cry from what we later see. Even when they are capable of honour, even when they are capable of looking beyond their hatred of the Federation, most notably Kang in Day of the Dove, they are still indelibly shaped as the other to the Federation. Stereotypes and caricatures of warlike aliens bent on conquest and destruction. But then that changes. Well, uh, it, it, yes, it does, uh, in a number of different ways. Uh, obviously, we get uh, a, a uh, you know, a, a visual uh, reconfiguring of them in the movies, uh, which then goes into... Uh, Next generation, um, and I've actually uh, I've we've we've we mentioned a bit in uh, the second episode, and I've actually talked about it on my other podcast uh, that era where Star Trek was kind of trying to evolve a bit, um, in in the seventies, um, partly through Star Trek Phase Two, there was uh, there were some discarded scripts, uh, one in particular, a two parter that was going to be all about the Klingons, and that helped. Uh, flesh them out a lot. There was a book called um, uh, The Final Reflection, 
uh, which uh, was a was you know non-canon spin-off novel, but it really tried to develop the Klingons uh, in some interesting ways, including making them uh, a society of castes in which they sometimes genetically bred themselves with other races, which is to explain the the lack of foreheads in the earlier days. Um, uh, which let's not get into that. <laughs> um, but they um, uh, ultimately. Gener Next Generation, uh, the, the episode Heart of Glory, which is the first real uh, Klingon episode on Star Trek Next Generation, uh, you can see them synthesizing some of those ideas. And they've continued to pop up uh, and develop more and more as Star Trek went on, uh, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine went on, all the way up to the Discovery era. Um, in Enterprise, uh, honestly, one of my favorite episodes of Enterprise, and an episode I genuinely quite like. I know Enterprise has its problems, but uh, I thought that was a really good episode. We, 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 it's very explicitly an episode about uh, trying to deal with some of the problems that arose from, just from a logistical standpoint, that arose with the Klingons, because you can't have a society made up entirely of warriors, uh, which is what <laughs> the, you know, the Klingons of the next generation era pretend to be. Uh, you, you see them as just non-stop boozing, fighting, and drinking. Again, the bikers of the universe. Um, and um, that clearly is not a way to run a functional society. Um, there have been a number of ways of trying to accommodate this, including the big one being that the, the cast we see the most often in uh, the Next Generation era is simply, uh, they're the warrior cast, they're the knights, uh, you know, like the mid 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 European mid uh, the Middle Age European uh, cast of knighthood, or you know the samurai, if you like, in Japan, uh, and and that there's lots of other Klingons out there who are keeping you know keeping the fires lit for all the non glamorous warrior stuff you have to do. Clearly, there are Klingon engineers and Klingon doctors. We that does get established. There's obviously Klingon politicians, uh, but everything is framed through a very militaristic lens. So of course you end up seeing the Klingons as being essentially fascist. Um, and and the episode Judgment really does sort of point to this as sort of, well, no, we, we had a culture. We still do, presumably. There's teachers, there's scientists, there's all that stuff. Of course it exists in the Klingon society, but the utter embrace of militarism and, and warlike uh, society has uh, took over um, to a point where their society just, you know, it has it glorifies uh, militarism and conflict to a to an obviously unhealthy degree, and and one might argue that that is actually leading to the ultimate um, destruction of the Klingon Empire. That what we see in Next Generation is this decadent, crumbling militaristic empire that probably could not last very long. Um, there's even a there's even a, a an argument going back, and and there's a ref, there is a reflection of that in the various chronological uh, looks at the Klingons we've seen over the years, including Discovery with Takuvma uniting the houses and, and so forth. Uh, you could definitely see that Klingon society probably went through different contractions and expansions and attempts to keep its militarism and, and, and culture going over the years. Um, in uh, there's, a, there's actually a fan theory that, <laughs> which I'm not sure I'm crazy about, but uh, Worf mentions that uh, the Klingons killed their gods, uh, a thousand, he says a thousand years ago, which seems like a bit of a short timeline, but maybe Klingon years are longer than human years. Um, and um, 
he uh, he says that, uh, and a lot of people have actually interpreted that as well. There were maybe the Klingons are literally genetically engineered by some other race. You know, maybe they maybe they gained sentience because someone landed on Kronos and and manipulated them to be warriors, and then either died off, that's the gods that they killed, or left or something, and and they took off, and and uh, and and since then they're this undeveloped culture. I'm not crazy about that. It's sort of it sort of suggests that you know, oh, they're warlike, so they must be unevolved. I'm like, no, that's not really, that's not really correct. I don't think that works. Uh, plus, you know, you can just have a folkloric story without it actually being literally your history that's been devolved into something else. Um, even though Star Trek does like to do that, does like to paint folklore as something that actually happened and got misinterpreted in different ways. Uh, but it, it is really interesting that the, you can build a coherent uh, history of the Klingons. We did cover it a lot in the last episode, so I actually don't want to spend too much time on it. Uh, but another culture in which we've started to see this, and again, we talked about uh, the evolution of, you know, for instance, the Ferengi and the Cardassians and so on, but one culture that's become really fascinating in the last... Um, really just the last year, uh, is the Romulans. Um, the Romulans are introduced in um, uh, Balance of Terror in the first in the first se uh, series. They're really the first recurring villains of Star Trek. Uh, they're brought in. Uh, they didn't get used as much as they could have for budget reasons. Um, then they start to become this sort of solid go-to, uh, you know, sneaky imperialist uh, enemy, unlike the Klingons who are just, like, who are a now allies of the Federation, sort of, and B, you know, they're very straightforward. You don't, you, you know where you stand with Klingons, uh, whereas the, 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 the Romulans are the sneaky, you know, semi-diplomatic uh, group that, that, that lusts after power and can, can find various complicated methodologies of, of undercutting the heroes. Uh, so they go to, they become fairly standard villains for a while. And then the Cardassians, unfortunately, come in, uh, in, D Next Generation, but especially Deep Space Nine, and they really eat the Romulans' lunch. They become the go-to sneaky imperialist society, uh, you know, pseudo-communist, if you like, but certainly pseudo-authoritarian challenge to the main characters. The Romulans end up, at, from that point on, becoming a bit of a, a third wheel in some ways, because their, their role in the show has been taken over by the Cardassians in many ways, um, certainly on Deep Space Nine. And there, there's no they they kind of they tried to work them into the Dominion arc storyline. Well, they and they do and it works well enough. Uh, but um, you know they're not. You know they're, they're again the Cardassians are occupying the space the, the Romulans would. Um, and there's some interesting stuff with uh, you know again Nemesis. Whatever your problems with Nemesis, um, it is interesting to see the storyline where their High Council gets killed off and usurped by. Um, by, uh, by, uh, what's his name? Uh, Tom Hardy's character, Shavar? Shinzon. Shinzon. Um, and then you get this massive, uh, re uh, thing that happens to the Romulans off screen in the Abrams era, <laughs> which is fascinating to me, which is that Romulus is destroyed. And it's literally just a plot point for what was probably seen as a, a branch of Star Trek that wasn't going to get used much anymore, the post-TNG era. They were literally rebooting the classic uh, show, so they they didn't, you know, want to spend a lot of time on that. Um, but as a result of that, and the, the Abrams era kind of not cohering the way people wanted it to, what we and with Discovery shipping, shipping, jumping to the future, what we've now gotten is a much more interesting Romulan uh, 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 culture, 
um, in which they are now dispossessed. They've gone. Com they've completely changed from what they were. They're no. I mean, they they they're still Romulans, but they're now refugees without a home world. Uh, who, we, as we know, eventually get uh, reunified with the Vulcans. They introduced the uh, Qu uh, Quahat Malat. Uh, was it, what, what is it again? Uh, I think it's Quahat Malat. It's, it's, it's something close enough to that. The audience are unlikely <laughs> to think we're referring to someone else. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the Quahat Malat are the... Um, who are introduced, they're really, I love them. You, whatever you think about Picard and season three of Discovery uh, using that that idea, uh, I find them really fascinating. It gives this extra punch to the Romulans. Oh, there was this interesting subculture. And it, it's not, you know, we're talking high-mindedly about these, uh, we're, ta we're talking about these high-minded ideas of what Star Trek means and what it represents and, and why they do these narrative choices. But there's also just the fact that meeting another race with different ideals is just cool. It's cool to meet these warriors who only speak the truth and bound themselves to uh, lost causes. Like, that's just a cool idea. It's fun. And that's something that I'd like to see a lot more of in Star Trek. Just, these guys are cool and represent, and, and, Something we can we can uh, we can get we can get attached to on a, an emotional level, uh, and just adding that extra level to Romulans uh, was a really good move. I think I, I really appreciate uh, what they did that. And then of course there's uh, the special sect that fights alien intelligence. So Picard really did all this work on the Romulans that was really interesting. Uh, whatever you think of Picard, I think the backstory that they dreamt up for the Romulans is really fascinating. I think that the Romulans suffer from a lot of the same problems that the Cybermen do on Doctor Who. They are definitely the other alien bad guys, but that's sort of like being uh, the Washington Generals. They're the ones who play the Harlem Globetrotters. They're not actually the main event. The problem that the Cybermen have always faced is that the Daleks will always be the dominant Doctor Who bad guys and that Good ideas tend to get eaten up by the Daleks first. Similarly, the Romulans suffer from being an important part of Star Trek lore, but not so important that other more prominent races don't take their good ideas. Something which you touched on is that in many ways, the roles of the Klingons and the Romulans in the original series actually seem to have flipped somewhat in later shows. In the original series, the Klingons are totalitarian and duplicitous, whereas the Romulans are enemies, but they're enemies you can have a conversation with, characterised by a keen sense of honour. You and I are of a kind. In another world, I could have called you friend. Whereas in later shows, Klingons are defined by this keen sense of honourable engagement, whereas the Romulans are defined by state control and totalitarianism. So the Romulans, having at once lost their original idea to the Klingons, and then having lost the role of being... Trek's articulate fascists to the Cardassians are in later shows defined largely by hostility and mystery, which can be good for a single episode, but this doesn't necessarily make for a good ongoing set of traits, especially since hostility and mystery are also the traits of the Breen, who have a more distinctive design. Mm. 
So hmm. I completely agree that discovery in going back to first principles and asking a lot of these key questions about why Romulan society functions as it does and how that society is going to function when they're no longer on top has done an invaluable service for the Romulans. The idea of a set of nuns who can do nothing but tell the truth as the only thing that holds together a society built on lies is amazing. You could build an entire <laughs> show around that insight. And the fact that it functions in the background of um, Picard, largely as a way of introducing a, 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 a secondary character in Elnor, speaks to the richness of what they've built and how much there is to build upon in later seasons. I think that the Romulans are always going to be there because Star Trek is not going to be willing to discard such an enormous aspect of its backstory. And so I think that given that Star Trek is always going to want to try to fix the Romulans somehow, Picard offers the best way of doing that yet, not by starting from scratch, so to speak, but picking up the ruins of what's emerged from 50 years of often inconsistent betrayals, asking key questions about how this somewhat disjointed culture will work, and presenting it in a new context so as to bring out new facets of it. And that and this can be by way of wrapping up our discussion more broadly, speaks to how the planet of hats can function as a starting point, but need not be the be-all and end-all. You can develop a culture along relatively straightforward superficial lines, or which is capable of being depicted in broad strokes, but it doesn't have to stay that way. Part of the virtue of a long-running series like Star Trek is that you can create great drama, you can create comedy and pathos and tragedy out of not just depicting a society like this, but asking essential questions about how it works and bringing out some of those nuances over the luxury that Star Trek affords you, which is time. Yes, I think that's that's exactly it. Like, it's fine to start with, okay, these guys are going to fill this role, whether it's a characteristic, oh, the Vulcans worship logic, or whether it's, okay, these are the bad guys and they, they fill this role in the story. Um, to, to go from there uh, and, and build on that, as you say, over the years. Uh, that's something that Star Trek's been weirdly reticent to do, uh, partly because uh, for much of its golden era, it wasn't, leaning too heavily on continuity. And then when it was with Deep Space Nine, uh, it was focused on a certain small group, basically. Bajorans, Cardassians, Ferengi to an extent, and then eventually the Dominion. And and even then they were they had to fill certain roles in the in the in the story. But um it, it is it is very heartening. One of the reasons I do, for all its problems, I do kind of like the last season of Enterprise, they very, very clearly uh acknowledge that Planet of Hats problem. Uh, they understand almost the entire season is devoted to, well, let's go back and revisit X, such as, for instance, with the Andorians. They give them the Anar, which is a subculture that exists within the, the Andorians. Uh, all, all the stuff with the Vulcans is about both the historical sweep of their culture and about uh, subcultures that might exist within uh, Vulcan uh Vulcan society, um, and in fact, it's that you know it's kind of about fixing the Vulcans, fixing the problems with Enterprise up to that point. Um, there's multiple, uh, and and it's very heartening to me that after a twenty year gap almost, uh, and Discovery is now basically taking their cue from that. They're saying, okay, we got to go back to these various species and races, and we've got to develop them and uh, and bring out more what what can be seen in them. Um, 
in 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 a lot of positive ways. I think I, you know we're we're going to get you know five more Star Trek spinoff shows or whatever. Um, and I always thought, and some of them don't sound super interesting, but you know one thing I would definitely watch a show about is somewhere along the line, the way uh, Romulus and, and Vulcan got reunited into Nevar. Uh, like, that's, hey, hey, that's a great uh, thing for a show, to see how the, the Romulans and the Vulcans had to, uh, had to, <laughs> had to reunite themselves and, 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 uh, and get their cultures working together. These two radically different cultures. We've only had one episode so far to even deal with that even slightly. It's clear that the Romulans aren't necessarily uh, embracing the Vulcan philosophy 100%, but they're able to work together. So it's become this uh, very diverse series of cultures within this one planet, which is a great uh, a great move. And that that offers so many story possibilities. I think that I find uh, I find really interesting. Uh, so that you know that's something that I'm very excited to see going forward with Star Trek. Just the idea of let a culture exist, let an alien culture exist for itself, not just as a means to tell a story or a means to uh, explore themes and even moralize, but to you know, really flesh out uh, the world and build the mythos of Star Trek up a little more. So I think that's very exciting. I, I well, obviously my ideal Star Trek show is a Klingon legal procedural, but that's just me. <laughs> Honestly, I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly right, that you don't just have to tell stereotypical Star Trek stories with Star Trek. That, I think, is there's always going to be a Star Trek show telling relatively traditional um, space opera stories. But this is a universe with an enormous amount of history to it, with, with an enormous amount of unexplored gaps. Part of the virtue of that universe is that it allows you to tell different types of stories. You can tell legal procedurals. You can tell quasi-anthropological stories. There's a novel by Una McCormack called... Um, the never-ending sacrifice. The never-ending, and I, I actually want to finish on that because it is a really interesting example of what you can do. The never-ending sacrifice is a sequel to a season two episode of Deep Space Nine called Cardassians, in which the main character Rugal, a young Cardassian boy who's been adopted by a Bajoran family, um, is ultimately returned to his father. On Cardassia. And the entire novel is an extended denunciation of that terrible decision by Cisco that having been removed from his loving family onto Cardassia, this young man goes through endless turmoil and hardship because of the next seven years of Cardassian history that follow from that, as depicted on Deep Space Nine. Now, this isn't a novel that's about. Um, Starfleet officers bravely just exploring new worlds or engaging in battle. It is a very interesting, nuanced character portrait filling in the gaps of the Star Trek universe, telling a fundamentally different type of story to what we've seen before. So the future of Star Trek doesn't just need to be about finding new ways to tell the same types of stories that we've seen before. You can tell new types of stories because that's what these nuances allow you to do. And ultimately... Hatania doesn't need to be just about making Starfleet officers uh, look good. There are ultimately s stories worth telling about Hatania itself. Yes, absolutely. That's like I say, it, the thing can exist for itself. It doesn't have to always serve the needs of the story, and that's uh, that's something I'm 
interested to see more of in Star Trek. So uh, we're going to uh, wrap it up here for the evening. And um, uh, just uh, once again, I'm Adam Prosser. With me is Douglas Nor uh, McDonald Norman. And uh, we're uh, just a reminder again, I do have another podcast. I've mentioned it. <laughs> Uh, during the course of the show. It's called What Mad Universe. It's at uh, neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe. Uh, I have a Twitter. I have a patron. I'm Twitter. I'm a prankster36 um, or Fantasmic Tales with a PH. Um, uh, I'm the one doing all the plugging because uh, Douglas has a real job. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm uh, so I just wanted to uh, remind you to check that out. Uh, we'll be back with more thoughts on Star Trek on the Mirror Universe podcast in the coming weeks. Live long and prosper. And we'll see you on the flip side.